Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're tuning into Service. John E. Bestricka, Private First Class. Veteran stories of hunger and war. They joined the service. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember Pearl Harbor. A production from iHeartRadio. We used to just give these people the food from our mess kits. You ate what you could get and be thankful for what you were getting. I'm your host, Jacqueline Raposo. So I appeal to the owners of plants to the managers, to the workers, to our own government employees, to put every ounce of effort into producing these munitions swiftly and without stint. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. Throughout the Great Depression and into the start of World War II, the Pennsylvania steel mills fired around the clock. Just outside of Pittsburgh, The towns of Rankin, Braddock, Swissville, and Regent Square spread around the mills. To feed the men feeding the furnaces, restaurants and shops stayed open deep into the night, employing more and more women as the Depression lingered on. Teenagers necked on hilltops lit by the firework-like smokestack display. The asthma and emphysema they eventually caused keeping busy peddling local doctors and nurses. There was plenty of work for those in this great steel-bending, back-breaking arsenal of democracy. A world that required workers. A world that welcomed women in roles they'd never been allowed to play before. In 1941, the Women's Army Corps was established, accepting what would become 350,000 women serving as clerics, lab technicians, drivers, and even pilots. 5,000 women would become army nurses within six months of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Over 7 million women Red Cross stations. Countless Salvation Army soldiers served overseas. Six million women would enter factories and fields to free the men up to fight. When she became a Baltimore shipyard welder, single mother Meta Montana Halliburton faced judgment from friends. 
and women on the trolley skirted away from her tired, work-boot-clad body. But Meta remembers taking pride in what her hands could make with a little rod and a little bit of welding, and the prayers prayed into the ships they sent off to war, and the careful rebuilding of the bombed vessels that returned to them. Career Army nurse Frances Liberty recalled nurses being scorned as the lowest of the low at the start of the war, right along with the evening ladies. That didn't stop them from landing in Normandy only four days after D-Day, or pulling wounded men from the battlefields in Italy. It was the world into which Army nurse Sister Melanie Cambic was born. At the time when Sister Melanie was going to nursing school, there was no financial support offered to women becoming war nurses. There were certain employment rules for mothers of children of a certain age. Women entered the workforce at double the rate of men, yet often made less than half the pay men would accept. And as this was a segregated world, last hired, first fired, made it even harder for African-American women to get ahead. How would the young woman who would become Sister Melanie Kambik? From the Sisters of Divine Providence Convent in Allison Park, Pennsylvania, let's slow down and sit to hear what she has to share. My name was Victoria Louise Cambic, and I was a second lieutenant in the Second World War. I came from a family that came from Croatia in response to that cry for people to work in the steel mills. They treated the foreigners very miserably. Most of the areas had two-room row houses. Our family moved into two rooms. We eventually had six children, enormous, now in that small two-room space. They had a small playground. There was a fence around it, but some bad children got in, and they tore everything up. They broke the swings and the merry-go-round and all the things that were there, the sliding board. So they put a magnetized fence around it so that anybody who tried to break in would get a little shock. The Croatians knew how to cook only three vegetables, cabbage, corn, and tomatoes. Those are the only three vegetables my mother ever cooked because that's what they learned in Europe. And cabbage was a horrible thing. Our shoemaker had a place where he made milkshakes. For a nickel, we could buy a milkshake from the shoemaker. It would last for a week sometimes because we'd sip on it. We didn't have very many treats like that. That was a very lovely thing for us. Nevertheless, I never experienced any shortage of food because we were raised to eat those three vegetables. We had cabbage every day for lunch. We had a coal stove in the kitchen, and it was awful smelling that cabbage. Our bringing up was very, very poor because of our circumstances. Though my father had a good job at the mill, he was in charge of the place where they melted the steel logs to make war material out of it. But I hardly ever saw him because he worked three shifts. Nevertheless, 
I was my father's favorite child. We were very close. One time, our baby was being born. She was three years younger than I was. He put a stool my brothers had made at the foot of the stairs, and he said, now you sit there until I tell you to get up. So the people were running up and down the stairs with all kinds of errands. And when the doctor finally came after delivering the baby, he looked at me, he said, my, you're a good girl. You sat there the whole time without moving. <laughs> I was very proud. I was a middle child. You know, middle child are left to do their own thing. I got attention because I helped people. So I wanted to be helpful. I always wanted to be a nurse. I guess I saw it on somebody's TV, or I saw the nurses going around helping people in the neighborhood. I was 17 when I graduated from high school. I took a job in a small store where the wealthy people had their clothes dry cleaned. I got $5 a month for working there, eight hours a day. I used to give some of it to my mother because she always needed money. It took me about five years to save enough money to go to school to become a nurse. I was older, and because of that, they gave me all the hardest patients. I had to work extra hard to keep my position in the hospital. But my mother was very proud of me when I graduated because then I could get a job and earn a little more. We are mobilizing our citizenship, for we are calling on men and women and property and money to join in making our defense effective. When I graduated from nursing, they were so in demand of nurses that I said to nursing, my girlfriend and I, I said, let's go join the Army, and we did. Run in place. Next stop, ladies, Camp Lane, Virginia. There was a young man in the hospital who apparently had some sort of back injury, probably a fractured vertebrae. He was in a flatbed, and I went to try to rub his back a little because I felt he needed a back rub from lying flat for so long without any care. He didn't want any female to touch him. Eventually, I coaxed him into getting a back rub to make him feel better, and he let me take care of him after that. And there was an elderly gentleman who was dying. Because he required so much attention, our leader put him in some back alley where he was not going to bother anybody. She wouldn't let me go back there too often because she said he takes too much time to spend on that kind of person because these other people need more attention. That's why she kept me in the big place. In the big ward, all I did was carry a plate full of cough medicine. That was the only nursing we did at that time. I never heard them complain too much about the food. They were fond of sweets, and I always tried to make sure that they had something sweet to satisfy their appetite for sweets. Even in my own apartment, I ate very sparingly, and even at the officers' club, they had normal food. I received enough food, and I thought everybody else did. I find it hard, but I find it satisfying because that was my nature to help people.
And I even went to visit that dying man without letting my supervisor know. I walked back one time to visit him. He was uttering phrases like dying people do, unconscious already. I just felt that I had to do that for these people because they needed it. Six hundred and seventy-one thousand wounded troops returned home to hospitals like Nurse Cambix at Camp Lee, Virginia. But so skilled were the nurses that had treated them on the field that fewer than four percent of them later died as a result of their war wounds or disease. Overseas, the slack-clad nurses had worked in unsanitary field hospitals. They'd kept up morale by helping to distribute backed-up V-mail. They'd fed starved patients in concentration camps and tended free prisoners of war on the roadside. 77 nurses were notoriously taken Japanese prisoners of war themselves, continuing to treat patients while also cooking weeds into cold cream to stave off their starvation. By the end of the war, 59,000 women, including 500 African-American women, had become Army Nurse Corps nurses. 16 were killed in direct action, 1,600 received commendations for outstanding conduct. The Women's Army Corps disbanded when the armed forces integrated in 1978. It wasn't until 2015 that the Department of Defense opened all combat jobs to women. Today, women make up about 20% of the Air Force, 19% of the Navy, 15% of the Army, and almost 9% of the Marine Corps. We'll be right back. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so... 
there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Service, veteran stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo. And we're here with Army nurse Victoria Louise Kambik at the Army Hospital in Camp Lee, Virginia. One of the many things I love to ponder as I sit with our World War II veterans is how much our population has grown since the time of the stories they're sharing, and how much they've had to adapt to this changing world. In 1945, the U.S. population was just under 140 million. Today, it's over twice that much. Cities that had become industrial giants would fall to international trade. Suburban sprawl set nails into factory town coffins. Malls would replace corner stores, medical centers, the local doctor, computers, nearly everything. This would take time, though. These veterans would be a part of the change. And when World War II ended, the women who had worked in the factories and fields and hospitals would each have to find her part in it. After her discharge, Nurse Kambik would earn a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing Education, and then a Master's of Science in Administration in Nursing Education. Then, at 33 years old in 1954, she would take a new kind of order entirely. I was in the Army for three years. I was accustomed to making do what I had to do, and what I had to do at that time was to get a job, and I found one. It was a transitory position, walking the field, working in homes, people that were jobless, taking care of patients who were homeless or people who needed food. We had a job making sandwiches for the jobless. There were a lot of stores that were selling bread sheep down by the riverside. Our home was near the riverside. I collected a lot of bread. I got the bread at a cheap rate, and I parked my car close to the edge of the river. When I was coming home after shopping around in those shops down there, I asked a man who was walking by, I said, would you get my car down there? So he walked down, and I had all that bread that I had purchased. He said, Ma, you're going to have a big feast with all that bread you're carrying. I said, oh, no, we're making sandwiches for the jobless. He said, oh, that's for the poor. Well, here, and he gave me $50. He said, that's for the poor. But I did a lot of home nursing, and one of the nurses that was doing home nursing, the upper edge of Rankin, there were some wild people up there who had lived there for years and years and would easily rob anybody of any money they had. And this nurse was doing house nursing up there, and they told her that she would have to keep a gunman walk along with her to protect her. So she quit her job because she said, I'm not going to work with a gunman. 
They never bothered me in the house that I occupied up there to serve the people because they knew that if they did anything to me, the people would all have to go down to the hospital to get treated, whereas now they could just run to my office and get something to take care of their problem. So I was safe up there. I didn't know much about religion because we didn't have any real religious training at home except to know that you have to go to Mass on Sundays and have to not eat meat on Fridays. Nevertheless, I really was a religious person. When I was 16, the sisters in Rankin, where I was born, wanted me to join their convent, but their mother house was on Staten Island. And I thought, if I go to Staten Island, I'll become so homesick, I'll come home and I'll never join any convent again. I tried to keep to my religious ideals, and I tried to read articles that would keep my faith alive. Listening to these articles made me feel that I need uh, more religious training. A chaplain had a mass near the officers' club, and I went to mass on Sundays and on holy days down at the chapel. Then when I left the army, my mother had fallen and fractured her hip. My youngest brother was very sick. So when these two people died, then I joined the Sisters of Divine Providence. When I came to this convent, I always felt they needed somebody. Their need came before my need. They never sent me to become a partial. They had me sleeping on the second floor in a department where everyone else goes to work except myself. They all had a job either in the convent or some of them worked outside, either in the post office or something. I just knew the ones who worked around the house. Some of them took care of the cleaning. Some took care of helping get patients in and out of the bathtubs. One sister had charge of the laundry in our big laundry that we had, and she would come up and I recognized her. Another one had charge of the young sisters. She was always aware of me, but she never participated too much with me. I just was aware that they were there, and I never conversed with them too much. That leaves me a lot of time for prayer. Sitting at a table with a group of nuns who had different pursuits, they would discuss their pursuits, and I just sat and listened. I very seldom enjoyed or participated in their conversations. Our food, I thought it was acceptable. When I came to the convent and I saw the cabbage on the menu, I snorted. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll never eat that. Oh, they're serving that again. I can't stand it. And I tasted it once, and it was really good. And after that, I was a cabbage lover. <laughs> I never had a feeling that we were being cheated out of any food. I always thought our diet was satisfactory. I was allowed to eat anything I wanted. I always felt that children needed special attention because they're eventually going to become as old as I am and they'll have needs. If we meet their needs properly, they'll grow up the right way and if we don't meet their needs, They'll grow up to be criminals or some other undesirable trait. There was a period of time when I was interested in the schools. 
I try to treat the children that I come into contact with in a way that would make me look favorable in their eyes rather than to be hostile. Because sometimes the nuns are very cruel to children and they develop a hatred of anything religious. So I tried to be as pleasant as I could. I got a bag of candy weighing about 100 pounds and I could share it easily with these children sometimes to get their favor. In infants, the baby doesn't respond to anything excepting being fed. As they grow older, they still want to be fed properly. If you hand a piece of candy to a toddler, they accept it willingly, and the older they get, the more they respond. I think that being kind in any way makes children different. The kinder you are to people, the more likely you're able to get their undivided attention. If we slough them off real casually, they'll respond in the same manner. They won't pay any attention. But if you're kind to them and treat them kindly, I think they'll respond by following you more closely. As a nun, Sister Melanie taught children and taught nursing and worked as a nurse practitioner all around Pennsylvania and Maryland and for a few years in Puerto Rico. She retired from nursing in 1994, returning to making sandwiches for the homeless as one of the peanut butter and jelly brigade of sisters working with Operation Safety Net outside of Pittsburgh. She became an early proponent of recycling. She celebrated her jubilee, that's 65 years with the order, in 2019. Today, she most often meditates on forgiveness and kindness, and leave a place better than you found it. And everything I did, I pointed to that in my work. Because of our poverty, I had to struggle to maintain my own personality and my character. And I think that struggle keeps on going. I try to please people as much as possible. If I find uh, things that needed to be changed, I'm changed into the best of my ability. And if I couldn't do anything, I prayed over it. If I ever get depressed, I could read my letters that the people that employed me had given me for all the jobs that I had after I graduated from nursing. They were so wonderful. What a wonderful nurse she is. Every letter was so upbeat that I said, if I ever feel depressed, I'll just read all those letters from the chief of staffs and I can uh, raise my spirits with those letters. I can't imagine anything else I'd rather do. You can find more about Sister Melanie Kambick and the women of World War II at her page at servicepodcast.org. There's also a form on our main page where you can send a message to Sister Melanie or any of the veterans we've featured this season. We watched a few incredible interviews of other women who served during World War II who have since passed away. And we'll be sharing some more from them on our Instagram and Facebook pages. We're at Service Podcast. So join us there if curious. In our final episode this season, authors Mike Cole and Anastasia Marks de Salcedo help us pull together how combat and cuisine most changed during World War II, affecting the lives of service members and civilians going forward. Until then... Service is a production from iHeartRadio, where our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins and our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. 
Avery Keatley was our on-site engineer for this episode, and we'd like to thank Sister Roseanne and Susan Rom from the Sisters of Divine Providence for their help coordinating this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to those serving and those who have served. the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.